Today we're beginning our study through the letter of 2 Peter, and so uh, we'll start out with just a quick survey of the book. Uh, what is it about? How is it the same or different from other letters in the New Testament, and why was it written? And uh, that, I think, will help us show what the theme of the whole book is, and I think it is this, grow up in God's true grace. So 1 Peter was about standing fast in God's true grace. 2 Peter is about growing up in God's true grace. Who's the author? Simon Peter, one of the Twelve Apostles, perhaps the most well-known as an outspoken man, as a leader among the rest. Uh, we obviously, I think, if we're familiar with uh, the New Testament, we see sort of a change in the course of his life from being this brash, outspoken sort of person to being ashamed because of denying Christ and even when he encounters Christ in the account that's at the end of John, chapter, uh, the book of John. And then in Acts 2, we see him standing up boldly again and continuing that but it is a boldness that is now, I think, based on the responsibility that Jesus has given to him and his relationship with Jesus, not in his own sort of natural personality to be loud and in your face and those sorts of things. He uh, is restored to ministry and leads in the founding of the early church, ministering to both Jews and Gentiles, but primarily to Jewish people. When did he write this? Uh, most People, uh, most people, a lot of scholars would look at the time of Peter's death as being somewhere in the mid to late A.D. 60s. So uh, First Peter, I said, was probably written um, in the early uh, part of that decade. And so Second Peter obviously is written after First Peter and prior to his death, but very shortly before his death because he talks a lot in it about expecting for his time to be ending soon. Why is he writing? Well, he wrote his first letter to believers facing persecution. Uh, we talked about a lot of this last week, reminding them of the precious salvation they received through Jesus and all the blessings God had promised. He reminded them to stand firm in God's grace, loving one another, pressing on toward maturity, putting off the old way of lust. Uh, he exhorts various groups toward these goals, uh, citizens and slaves and husbands and wives, uh, elders in the congregation, he sees God using his word to accomplish this change in people's lives. Peter's building on these themes in his second letter. He's writing to believers. We see this in verse 1. Simon Peter, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Uh, he also is talking to believers based on chapter 3, where he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to remind you of the things that you should remember the words spoken by the prophets and the apostles. Uh, he's writing to believers. He's writing to uh, them to emphasize salvation based on true knowledge. We see that in verse 2, grace and peace in the knowledge of God. Verse 3, through the true knowledge of him who called us. Verse 8, that you would not be unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we see in chapter 2, verse 20, uh, if they uh, escape the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then in chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This knowledge is given by true prophets and by eyewitnesses. We see this in chapter 1, verse 16. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven. Verse 20, uh, no prophecy is one's own interpretation, but rather, verse 21, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 
Uh, this is set in, uh, this also leads to right character. We're going to look at that this morning, especially in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. This is in contrast to the heretical and sensuous message, which we see in chapter 2, verse 1. False prophets will introduce destructive heresies. Many will follow their sensuality. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This heretical and sensuous message of false prophets, false prophets described as unreasoning animals, those who have eyes full of adultery, those who have forsaken the, the right way full of greed, all of these descriptions in chapter 2 lead them to destruction. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, they bring swift destruction upon themselves. In chapter 2, verse 4, if God did not spare angels or the ancient world or Sodom and Gomorrah, then God will keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. And then also verse 16, it talks about a rebuke for their own uh, transgression. Peter is reminding them. We see this reminder in chapter 2, verse 12, I will be ready to remind you of these things. I will stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, I will be diligent that you can call these things to mind. And then again in chapter 3, this is the second letter I write to stir up your mind by way of reminder that you should remember these words. And uh, then that leads to how they're supposed to live in chapter 3, God's, uh, reminding them of God's promises uh, to steady them from falling away. Chapter 3, verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Peter wants to see them pressing on in maturity, and seeing God's work carried forward even after Peter himself has died and is no longer part of the work that God's doing in the world. I think this would lead us then to understand that the end of 2 Peter 3 sort of is his goal, his purpose for why he's writing the letter. Therefore, beloved, chapter 3, verse 14, since you look for these things, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. And then also verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So this is why Peter is writing his letter. Who is Peter writing it to? When we went through 1 Peter, I said that he, I believe, is writing it to Jewish people. Uh, the main reason that this matters, whether he's writing to Jewish people or to Gentiles, is because of how he addressed the people in 1 Peter chapter 2. Some people have said, well, he's addressing Gentiles and the church has replaced Israel because of the way Peter talks in 1 Peter 2. I think it's better to see it as God restoring his people, some of whom are part of the church, in 1 Peter 2, uh, fulfilling the promises that he's made instead of casting them aside and just giving them to a different group of people. Uh, I think the way that Second Peter, the, the examples that he uses in Second Peter also fit a more Jewish audience. So he uses characters from the Old Testament like angels who sinned, the world in the days of Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the story of Lot, uh, references to Balaam, excerpts from Proverbs, all of these things that have, would have been, I think, very familiar to a Jewish audience, perhaps not unknown to a Gentile audience, but it seems that he would have used different examples. Uh, when Paul addresses a Gentile audience, what sort of examples does he use? He appeals to things about creation. 
He appeals to things about uh, their own prophets and poets. He appeals to things that they can observe in the world around them. God sends you the rain, those sorts of things. He doesn't appeal so much to the stories of the Old Testament like Peter does in 2 Peter. Like a number of other New Testament letters, Peter begins with a greeting in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, then explores the implications of salvation throughout the rest of chapter 1, warns against false prophets in chapters 2 and 3, and then concludes with that admonition we looked at against falling away and a benediction in chapter 3, verse 18. That's kind of the survey of the book of 2 Peter. And the whole theme of the book, I would say, is to grow up in God's true grace. But the first part of that I see, I think we see in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, is this understanding of how salvation builds on God's promises, how Peter develops what he's already started saying in his first letter. And I think the theme of these first 11 verses is knowing Jesus means living like Jesus so that you will be with Jesus. Knowing Jesus means living like Jesus so that you will be with Jesus. Knowing Jesus, I think we see from the first four verses, is a gift from God. Knowing Jesus is a gift from God. First of all, God gives you faith. We see this in the first two verses. Simon Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. When he says you've received a faith as this, of the same kind as ours, I think he's reminding them of this truth that you can't make your own path to God. Peter followed Jesus. Peter is pointing his audience to follow Jesus. There is one way of coming to God, and that's through Jesus. You can't say, well, I'm going to try to be a good person. You can't say, well, I'm going to try to follow the expectations of society. You can't say, well, I'll try not to break any significant laws. You can't say fill in the blank. Any path or attempt to get to God in a way other than through Jesus is not the same kind as ours, the faith that Peter describes in verse 1. Instead, Peter is talking about the fact that we have to believe in Jesus because he lived a life to please God when you couldn't. So he says this is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of our attempts to come to God by a different way involve us saying, here is what I have done, God, you need to accept that, and on the basis of what I have done, I am right with you. And Peter is saying the same kind of faith that is real and genuine and the one way to God is characterized by being based on the righteousness of what Jesus did. Jesus obeyed God perfectly in his everyday life. Why? Because you and I don't. And so any concept of a relationship with God that is built on us getting God's approval by doing good things so that our good works get us to heaven is not the same kind of faith that Peter has held up here. The irony of this is there are large swaths of professing Christianity that claim to follow Peter's authority as an apostle but their entire system of belief is based on living out what Jesus did plus good things that I do is the reason that I end up in God's presence forever. So, Peter is saying, 
You can't make up your own way to God. And the way to God is based on what Jesus did, not what you and I do. Now, there's a balance there because a little bit later he's going to say, if you know Jesus, live this way. But that order is incredibly important. It's not live this way so that Jesus is happy with you so that you end up in God's presence somewhat, someday. It's if you know Jesus and have come under his authority and seen his work in your place as the only path to God, then you will live in a particular way and then you will be with God someday. And those two can sound similar but they are very, very different. One is trusting in myself and trying to get to God on my own by things that I have done. The other is, because Jesus has done it in my place, I am now able to follow after God imperfectly throughout this life, but more and more as I grow, draw closer to God and become more and more like him. God gives you faith, verses 1 and 2. God also gives you everything you need to live life for him, verse 3. You have everything you need to please God. He says in verse 3, He's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have everything you need for life and godliness. The Bible is not intended to be a textbook that is exhaustive about every last subject in the world. On the matters on which it speaks, it is completely true and accurate. There were people who argued that the world is flat before we realized that it wasn't, but the Bible said long before that it wasn't flat. There were people who argued that there were certain things about history that never happened. The Bible said they happened, and later things have borne out that that's true. But whether or not there is external evidence to confirm the things that the Bible has said, the Bible is true, and it is from God. However, I think we need to quickly move from the concept of the Bible being the focus of verse 3, which is the way that we tend to look at it, and see who it is that this verse is pointing us to. Verse 2 says, You have everything you need for life by knowing Jesus truly, through the true knowledge of him who called us. How do we learn about Jesus? We learn about Jesus from the Bible, but the point is not to stop with the Bible as though it is the end goal. The goal is that we learn about what Jesus is like through the Bible so that we draw closer in a relationship with him. It would be kind of like if you had a series of emails with a friend or from long ago, maybe letters. And you said, I know my friend on the basis of these letters, but your friend lives five minutes away. You never go and see your friend. You never talk with your friend. You never do anything with your friend. You never have your friend over. While there's much that can be revealed by interacting and communicating through letters or emails or all those sorts of things, there's a difference between knowing facts about someone or trying to understand things about someone based on things that they've said and actually knowing and having a relationship with that person. Too many times we look at the Bible and we say, as long as I know what the Bible says, I'm good. The point of the Bible is not that, that we would know the Bible. The point of the Bible is that we know the Bible so that we can understand God, so that we have a relationship with God. 
which is why it says in verse 3 that everything has been granted to us through the true knowledge of him who called us. Jesus called you to follow him. And Jesus called you through his own glory and moral excellence. And this is important because I think sometimes we lose the link between verse 3 and verse 5, which we're going to get to here in a moment. Jesus has moral excellence. Following his example, we likewise have moral excellence. Jesus called us to follow after him, yes, based on the things that are in the Bible, but to follow after him, not to follow after a system of belief or a structure of religion or a series of traditions that are not about Jesus. And this is really important because when we make Christianity about only, rather, about doctrinal statements or patterns of doing things or all of those sorts of things, we lose sight of the fact that the church is not about us and the church is not about knowledge of things. The church is about Jesus and about knowledge that is a relationship with him. So it's very important for us not to forget that because it would be entirely possible for someone to come into this assembly, read through the statement of faith, say, yes, in principle, I agree with the church commitments, the policies and the bylaws, fine, we can follow those, those things, and say, conceptually, I agree with the ideas that are laid out and think that they're right, and think that these are the right way to live, and think that this is the right way to do things. But if that person doesn't actually know God, it doesn't matter if they agree with everything in the statement of faith. It doesn't matter if they're living out some of the things of the church commitments by God's common grace. And it doesn't matter if they say, yeah, those policies are fine in the bylaws. It is entirely possible for someone to be religious and on their way to hell. Which is why I think Peter's warning at the end of this in verse 10 to be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you is especially important in the context of people who are convinced that they know God. Not because the goal of Peter is to convince you that you don't know God, but because it's possible for us to be deceived and substitute facts and knowledge and procedures and policies for a dynamic and real relationship with God through Jesus. The third thing we see here under this idea of knowing Jesus is a gift from God is in verse 4. God gives you promises to set you free from sin. So we see those who have received a faith, verse 1, those who have been granted everything we need, verse 3, and now verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. The glory and moral excellence of Jesus made it possible for God to give wonderful promises of salvation to sinners. Because Jesus is full of glory and perfect in his obedience of God, 
God can hold out a promise to his people like, if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Or in the words of Peter and the other apostles, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the promise is held out that all who come to, Jesus, come to God through Jesus will find salvation. That then leads to the fact that through God's promises you can share in God's holiness. It says, so that by them, by God's promises, such as, come to me and I will receive you, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now we might hear that and we might say, well, this sounds like a very strange idea, partakers of the divine nature. Is he saying partakers of the divine nature means you will become a God? Or you will become God or part of God? No. What he's saying is, here is what God's character is like on the basis of the promises that God has held out, which they have received and which they have believed in about Jesus and salvation. You and they and I, all of us together, are able to become like God. Not to become a God, not to become part of Godness, but to the extent that God demonstrates moral excellence, He is able to work in our lives moral excellence, and thereby we become partakers of the divine nature. But the thing that has to happen before that can take place is that we have to be freed from our sin. Peter says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Because God has helped you escape the lust of the world. And so we come here to these first four verses, and I think there's some questions that we need to ask. Are you trying to make your own path to God, or are you believing in Jesus only? Because Peter says this is a faith that is based on the righteousness of Jesus. I think another question we need to ask ourselves is, where do you look for what you need for life? Jesus is what you need. You don't need the lie of evolution that life is an accident. You don't need the lie that psychiatrists often tell that your problems are everyone else's fault. You don't need the lie of advertising that lusting after an attractive person will make all your dreams come true. You don't need the lie of entertainment that life apart from God doing whatever you want will make you happy. You don't need the lie of religion that being a better person will get you into God's presence. You need Jesus. And you only need Jesus to live life in a way that is godly. I think a third question that we should ask from these verses are, is, are you free from sin? When I say free from sin, I don't mean you never sin. I mean, has sin's power in your life been broken? Or do you find yourself trapped, so entangled in it, that you don't even care sometimes whether people find out that you're sinning in a particular way? Jesus can set you free from sin. John says in John 8 that you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. But the only way that this freedom from sin comes is when we look sin in the eye and see how awful it is. We stop trying to beat it on our own and we ask God to help us. 
The problem in so many instances when it comes to sin is not that we love the consequences of it, because no one likes the consequences of sin, but we're unwilling to go all the way and say, I hate the sin that leads to the consequences. I love God, and that means I turn away from the sin. But the only way we have the power to defeat sin is when the Spirit dwells within us, and the only way that that happens is when we have turned to God through Jesus. If you don't know Jesus in the way that it describes it here in these first four verses, don't listen to the rest of the sermon. At least don't listen to it like it applies to you. Because you can't live like Jesus until you know Jesus. But if you do know Jesus, we see secondly from these verses that knowing Jesus means living like Jesus. Verse 5. Because Jesus has freed you from sin, be diligent in faith. For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. Jesus has freed you from sin. To grow in faith, not to sit around and wait until you die or he comes back. He says, applying all diligence. What does applying all diligence look like? Hmm. It means putting forth effort, and it means doing something wholeheartedly and thoroughly. Um, I think this shows up sometimes in the way that we do things around the house, right? Let's say you're a kid and your parents say, take the trash out. Take the trash out and you leave it in the garage instead of putting it in the trash can outside. Or you take the trash out and you put it in the trash can, but you leave the door open. Or you put it in the trash can and you shut the door, but you don't put a new bag in the trash can. Diligence is you are focused enough on the task that you do all of what it requires. I'm not picking on my kids specifically because I did the exact same thing when I was their age. I try to do better about that now. My point is just to say it is easy for us to sort of let things drop off the radar and be lazy in our Christian walk and not see it as a priority. And Peter says, for this very reason also, what reason? Because you've escaped the corruption in the world by lust or maybe the collection of all the things he set up to this point, applying all diligence, do this thoroughly, diligently, fervently, wholeheartedly in your faith supply. And we're going to get into what all of these things are. He's basically saying, on the basis of your faith, grow in all of these aspects of Christian virtue. We'll talk about that in a moment. Freedom from sin, I think he's saying here at the beginning of verse 5, means that you can devote yourself with diligence to growing in faith. Sometimes we get it backwards. We say, I want to do things that are pleasing to God, and I am going to not do these bad things. But to the extent that you and I are continually enslaved to certain habits of sin, and those are taking up all of our time and attention, we're not going to have the freedom and the focus to do what Peter is saying here. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. I'm just saying if there are sins that are controlling your life, 
that you are, especially if you're giving in to them every moment of every day, but even if you're struggling with them every moment of every day, it's going to be very hard for you to grow in the kind of maturity that he's talking about. Peter's view or goal for the people that he's writing to is that we're not distracted by sin's constant pull to the same old tired habits of evil over and over and over again. In verses 5 through 7, he is saying, be diligent in your faith so your life matches up to Jesus. So, because Jesus has freed you from sin, be diligent in faith, and be diligent in faith so that your life matches up to Jesus. Sacrificial love is the last thing on this list in verse 7. Verse 7, the, with the very end there where it says love. Brotherly kindness is another word for love. Philadelphia, right? Uh, or the word that we get Philadelphia from. And love at the very end is sort of the sacrificial love we see Jesus demonstrating when he died for sinners. While that sort of sacrificial love is perhaps the hardest for us to live out in our daily lives, I don't think Peter is setting these things out as a sequence that all of them have to be in perfect order before you get to the last one. So sometimes people looked at this passage and they said, you do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this. That's kind of the Ben Franklin approach to morality, right? I'm going to work on lying this week. In two weeks, I'm going to work on anger. In four weeks, I'm going to work on not being greedy or envious. The problem with that is the Holy Spirit is presumably working on all these things all at once in our lives. And so if we're like, I'm only going to focus on one of these things on the list, I think we're misunderstanding the purpose of what Peter is saying. At the same time, we have to start with faith and end with sacrificial love, so there is a progression. The first thing on the list, moral excellence. Jesus has moral excellence or virtue and so should you. Where do I see that? Because it says in verse 3, we grow through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Jesus is characterized by moral excellence, by moral perfection, and that is the goal to which we strive. This word is only used a handful of times in the New Testament. It is basically the idea of excellence, but excellence in character, not excellence in like basketball or excellence in how you handle money, although maybe those things flow out of it. It is excellence in your character, in your morality, in the way that you are before God and others. Jesus, furthermore, has knowledge of God. We see knowledge next in the list. We know that it's knowledge of God based on verse 2, because Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied you in the knowledge of God. And then in verse 3, it talks about through the true knowledge of him. So the knowledge here is not knowing facts about life and science and whatever else. The knowledge is, do you know God? Jesus obviously knows God perfectly because he is God. But he patterns for us what it looks like to have a relationship with God through prayer, through um, knowing the words that God has said. And so we are to grow in our knowledge of God, and not just knowledge sort of through external things, but of God himself. We see also self-control here in the list. Did Jesus demonstrate self-control? Jesus wasn't married, 
and he never committed adultery or any other sins of the body that single guys could potentially be prone to. Jesus, beyond those things, never sinned in things like greed. When Satan tempts him and says, here are all the kingdoms of the world if you worship me. God intended for Jesus to rule the world. Kind of like God intended for the Israelites to have a king. But the problem with Saul and the problem with what Satan offered Jesus was not a, good, a bad thing. It was a good thing at the wrong time. And so, do you and I in our Christian lives have the self-control to say no, not only to sinful things, but also to good things in the wrong moment? We see also here perseverance. Perseverance is perseverance in following after God. There's many things that we could persevere in. Persevere in doing household chores like taking out the trash, and that's good, but I don't think it's the main focus of what we see here. This is perseverance in following after God. How far did Jesus go in following after God? To the point of death. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, if it's possible, take this from me. He's in such agony of prayer and intensity of focus that he's sweating drops of blood. The disciples are sleeping, among whom Peter is perhaps the worst because he was the most uh, bold that he was going to get everything right in that moment, right? And then Jesus is in this intense moment of prayer. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't leave the garden knowing that if he had left the garden, he wouldn't have gotten arrested. He stays. He gets arrested. He goes through the beating and the shame and the agony of the cross. He goes all the way in his perseverance of following after God. The book of Hebrews says, how far have you persisted in your fighting against sin and in your diligence in following after God? To the same point that Jesus did? Or did you give up too soon? And so Peter is saying part of the fruit that God is developing in our lives is that we persevere in following after God. Jesus demonstrated godliness. And we could make the, the case, well, obviously he's going to demonstrate godliness. He is God. But that's not really the, the out that Peter gives us here. If Jesus demonstrated being like God, came to reveal God to us, and we are called to follow in his footsteps, then we are similarly called to become like God, not to replace him, but to share in the divine nature by becoming like God in the way that we respond to things, in the words that we say, in the way that we think about things, in our emotional responses. All of this comes to a point where it mirrors God's responses, God's character, the way that God is. You become like God as you follow him. We see brotherly kindness. 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 22 said, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Did Jesus demonstrate love of the brethren? Yeah, he served the disciples when they're arguing about who's the best and who's the greatest and who's going to be in charge when Jesus leaves. Jesus is right there. Jesus going around washing their feet. We should similarly have a brotherly love for one another that says, mm, 
You're part of my family. I will help you. But then even beyond that, Jesus demonstrates sacrificial love. Because let's be honest, there's moments when there's things that we won't do even for people in our own family. Jesus did them, and particularly, we won't do them for strangers, and Jesus did them for strangers. And not just strangers that we think might be good people, but strangers that are horribly terrible people. Jesus dies not for his family, not for his friends, but for his enemies. And if God has worked such a change in our heart and lives that we're at a point of being able to love people in that way, then Peter says we have pressed on toward maturity in diligently pursuing all of what it is that God is calling us to be. We're not going to do any of these things in this list perfectly. Probably there will be moments when we do them imperfectly for the rest of our lives. But Peter says, just because you're not going to do them perfectly in every moment of your life, you can't just say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to worry about them. Peter says, work hard at it, applying all diligence, supply these things, develop these things, knowing that, as we see in other passages throughout the Bible, God is the one who's producing them in you. They're the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the people, right? But he invites us to enter in and participate with him as we grow in these things. Um, There's a verse that says, work out your salvation with all diligence, with fear and trembling rather, which parallels Peter's idea of diligence, because it is God who is at work in you. Those two things go hand in hand. We may not understand exactly how that works, but you and I can't grow in being like God apart from God. And we don't grow in being like God apart from diligently working at it. And that's just what the Bible holds out for us. Knowing Jesus means living like Jesus in much the same way that knowing a family member means absorbing ways of speaking and doing things that mirror his example. The difference is with God, we have a perfect example in Jesus. You want to see what God the Father is like? Here's Jesus. He's the express image of God the Father, it says in Colossians. How can we be like God? By being like Jesus. How can we be like Jesus? We have Christian examples. Paul holds himself up as a Christian example. I think Peter is holding himself up as an example. But the main example we're supposed to be looking to is Jesus because all human examples fall short. But what's the point of all this? Knowing Jesus, we have salvation, we have a relationship with God. Living like Jesus growing in all these areas that are described in verses 5 through 7, so that you'll be with Jesus, verses 8 through 11. We come to these verses, I think Peter wants us to ask ourselves this, am am I living like Jesus? Because he says in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing. What does if mean? It's possible they're not. If you have these virtues and they're more visible over time, you are not useless or unfruitful. Here's the thing about relationships. They are not usually stagnant. What I mean by that is the perceived closeness that you have with a person near you, in your family, uh, moving toward marriage, uh, a close friend, 
you either spend more and more time and do more and more things and have more and more conversations and, and help each other more and more and all of that and grow closer over the course of time, or you spend no time with each other, get in a fight, whatever else, and go further apart from each other. It's really hard, if not impossible, to just sit at the same mm, perceived relational distance from each other. If you're closer to Jesus, you're going to be more like him. How many of you have ever found yourself saying something that someone in your family says, and their phrase becomes your phrase? Why does that happen? Because you're around them all the time. You see someone twice a year, you know what's not usually true? You don't talk the same way that they do and use little quirks of expression that they do. The more that you and I are close to Jesus, the more we're like him. The further away we are, the less we are like him. When it says not useless or not fruitless, I think he is saying sometimes there's cases where the opposite of something is not true, right? So we can't just flip the phrase in every verse and say, well, the opposite is true, right? But in this verse, Peter is, I think, speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek and saying, if you have these things, you're neither useless nor unfruitful. What does he mean? You're very useful and you're very fruitful if you do possess these things. This is knowledge of God that shows out in your life, not in just facts that you have in your head. If you say, I know God, but I live against what God wants, I don't really know God. If you say, I have self-control, but then my life is ruled by lust for food or sexual pleasure or accumulating objects, I'm not really having self-control. If I say I love people around me, but it's just words and it's never demonstrated in actions, do we really love them? And so Peter is calling us not just to try to live these things out, but to be periodically examining ourselves with God's help, kind of like it says at the end of Psalm 119, see if there is any wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting, right? Or here it is, if these things are true, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. Here's the flip side of it in verse 9. If you don't have these virtues, you are blind and forgetful. Positively, you can be useful to God and fruitful for God as he has produced this fruit in you and as he has shaped you to be, be useful on his behalf. Negatively, if you don't have these qualities, it says you're blind or short-sighted. Peter doesn't automatically say you don't know God. Why do I say that? Because he says, having forgotten purification from former sins. Peter has in view here, I think, people who do in fact have a genuine relationship with God, but are not really living like they do. If we believe that God's the one who brings us to salvation, sometimes it's easy for us to jump too quickly to, they're not living like they know God, so God must not have saved them, and we don't have to worry about that this is a believer who is struggling. We just assume that person is an unbeliever who never knew God in the first place. Peter, I think, would call us to not jump too quickly to that sort of conclusion, in part because we don't know the whole story of someone's life by just a snapshot of it, 
and in part because it is entirely possible, given some of the examples he's going to use later in the book, for people to very much appear not to be followers of God and yet know what the true relationship with God looks like. If you are not doing any of these things, if you're, first of all, not being diligent, but then if you are being diligent, but you're not working at all these things Peter calls us to, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, if you're not fervently pursuing all these things, Peter says you're blind. What are you blind to? You're blind to the fact that God has freed you from sin not to park there and be exactly like you were at the moment God saved you for the whole rest of your life, but he wants to change you to make you more like Jesus. So a view of Christianity that says, I prayed a prayer, I'm going to heaven, I'll do whatever I want until it's time to go, has completely missed the point of what Christian maturity looks like and potentially has misunderstood the gospel. Because the New Testament has very little room, if any, for people who say, I know God, but I do whatever I want. So what is Peter calling us to do? You're, remember that you are saved from sin, not to keep living in sin, not to just sort of park at the moment that you were and freeze at this snapshot in time, but to become more like Jesus every day. If you are living like Jesus, I think Peter would say this, keep up the good work. So ask yourself if you're living like Jesus, but if the answer appears to be yes, keep up the good work. Your walk with God should not be marked by either self-confidence or by doubting God's word. So verse 10, therefore be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. There's two errors in which we can fall. There's the error of constantly doubting whether we actually have a relationship with God, even though we are striving to follow after God. And these, there's the error of having such confidence in ourselves that we never even question, do we know God, even though our lives are marked by sin. If you tend to be over here in the doubting God's word, what does God say is involved in salvation? Know God through Jesus. But I sinned last week, but I, I'm not perfect yet, but you can genuinely know God and still have struggles with sin. You can genuinely know God and still need God's help to every day because, in fact, that's just how it is, right? But if we find ourselves over here and we're not usually prone to doubting, the first part of what Peter says, I think, should give us pause and say, be all the more certain about his calling and choosing you. Not because you are producing all these things on your own, but because you see the evidence of God's work in your life, you are relying on him constantly. You've experienced what Peter has experienced, right? I'm not proud in myself. I'm not boastful in saying, Jesus, I'm going to die for you. And then when it's tested, we fail and all of that. Instead, it is, we realize that we have shortcomings, but that doesn't mean that we don't know God necessarily. We can't live in sin if we know God. 
But the fact that we still struggle with sin doesn't make us think that there's no relationship at all. Verse 11, in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. A good life, according to God's pattern, is evidence that you really know him and will share in his kingdom. You have to know Jesus first of all. If you know Jesus, Peter calls you to live like Jesus. If you live like Jesus, it is evidence that God is at work in you and that you have a share in his kingdom someday. Because it is possible for us to deceive ourselves about any of these three points, we have to take moments and examine. And that's part of the responsibility of the church assembly to come alongside each of us and say, hey, you doing okay? Or, hey, you're walking through some difficulty or some moment of rejoicing and you're continuing to follow after God, keep up the good work. But in the end, Peter is saying, knowing Jesus means living like Jesus so that you will be with Jesus. And all three of those things are very important to our walk with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these reminders from Peter. Peter, who was very confident in himself until you broke his pride. But the denial did not exclude him from future ministry. It was the path that you used to humble him and prepare him for what you had for him to do. And I think in our lives, you use those same kinds of moments. We can be confident in ourselves and certain that we're walking with you. And then you use various circumstances at various points in our life to humble us and to remind us that we have gotten complacent or that we have been tolerating sin. You arrest our attention and you say, follow after me, not half-heartedly, not still giving into sin, but wholeheartedly and devotedly to you. Lord, help us to strive toward your kingdom, not because we earn our way to it, but because if you have made an opening for us, we ought to devote our lives to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.